Well, good morning, church. Uh, thank you for joining us here on this gorgeous summer weekend. I'm glad that you're here. I hope you've had a chance for the past few days to enjoy some of the great weather that we've been having. I know that I was out maybe Thursday and Friday at camping up north in a Wallace State Park. Not sure if any of you have been there. Beautiful, beautiful place up there. And then yesterday I was at a great tailgate. So it's been good for me to be out in the sun, uh, but it is also good to be with you here today. And I debated about whether or not to share this up front, but I'm going to. Had a little bit of a stomach bug uh, between last night and this morning, right? Y'all can read between the lines. And so I'm going to pray here for just a little energy to get through it because I'm uh, just feeling the stomach, haven't been able to keep much food down. So would you join me in prayer before we begin? But Lord, I have been uh, so excited for this sermon. It's uh, some difficult things that we'll be exploring today, but it is uh, good news. It is news that is central to our faith. And so I just ask uh, for all of us to be plugged into what it is that you'd have to say to us and ask, uh, man, humbly for myself, God, keep a, kind of some energy alive and some focus up here, uh, knowing I haven't had much to eat. So we love you. Uh, we're grateful for this time together in church. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'd like to start our time together this morning uh, by telling you the story of a woman that I ran across online this week. Uh, since I encountered this story, I have to be honest, uh, I haven't been able to get it out of my mind. I guess you could say it just really grabbed a hold of my heart. Uh, the woman that the story is about, her name is Stephanie Ochoa, and Stephanie's from uh, Galt, California, which is a small town uh, right outside Sacramento. In this past year, Stephanie's boyfriend, Carlos, uh, was killed in a homicide that remains unsolved. And then just this past week, Stephanie, the now single mom, uh, found herself homeless alongside her two children, Carlos and Ariana, after the car in which they were living in uh, was stolen by three teenage boys. So everything they owned was in the car when it was taken, um, including Stephanie's purse, which had a little money that she had saved up in the hopes of putting down a deposit on an, ap an apartment for her family. Uh, and so Stephanie, she reported the car missing uh, about a week ago, and then on Tuesday of this past week, the police, they identified her car on a California freeway. Uh, they pursued the vehicle and they caught up, up to it just as it burst into flames uh, in the triple-digit California heat. So her car, it was a kind of reduced to a blackened metal frame. And in an interview with the local news station, uh, Stephanie said this. She said, I don't have anything. They took everything from me. I'm a single mom of two. I literally lost everything. And she continued, nobody's going to help me. My car's gone. All of my belongings are gone. I don't have anything. In church, as soon as I heard Stephanie's story, I felt a mixture of, kind of sadness um, and despair and anger that's become uh, more familiar to me. Indeed, uh, it's a feeling that I experience, I experience regularly, uh, probably because I work as a pastor. Because the job that I have, it means that you hear all kinds of stories um, of people in the midst of great loss, um, immense heartbreak, story where those involved would likely say that Stephanie's words offer an appropriate summary. I've lost everything. It's all gone. Um, and these kinds of stories of overwhelming loss, they're not just familiar to me. I, I bet that they're familiar to you as well. Uh, so often they're the stories of our friends or of our family members. Uh, they're the stories of those right here in this church. Perhaps you might say that these kinds of stories sound a whole lot like your story right now. And when we hear stories like this, our impulse generally is to try to help, 
uh, to try to see if there's any way we can make things better. We might go online to see if there's a GoFundMe page that's been started or ask our small group to join us in providing meals for those whose lives have been radically changed by some unforeseen circumstance. We generally want to be a part of the solution, but today, in the scripture that we're going to explore, we encounter a story of great loss and the response from God's prophet Elijah, I think, is, is very surprising. Instead of offering help, uh, Elijah asks for help. And for some reason, the woman who has lost it all agrees to come to his aid. It's a compelling story. And I think as we engage it this morning, it's a story that has much to teach us about what to do with those parts of our lives that seem dead and destroyed. I think this is a story that offers insight into how we might respond to those areas of our lives that feel hopeless and beyond repair. It's my prayer that this story will stir hope in our hearts and remind us of God's great love. It really is a compelling story, so I'm ready to dive in. But first, let's remind ourselves of where we've been. Last week, we launched a new sermon series at Christ Community called With Us. It's a series designed to remind us that God is faithful, that God is present, that even when our world feels dark and hopeless, even when we feel discarded and abandoned, God is with us. In this story, it takes a closer look at God's people, Israel, during a very pivotal time in their national history. Uh, last Sunday, Pastor Dave was here and gave us great information about Israel at this time. He told us about King Ahab, the leader of the northern tribes, who was a, just a terrible leader. He disregarded Israel's religious teaching. He disregarded God, and he encouraged his people instead to embrace Baal, a Canaanite god whose worship involved all kinds of dark and despicable practices like child sacrifice, right? That's where we were. And we saw last week how God raised up a prophet, Elijah, to challenge King Ahab and to encourage the whole nation to return to God. And in order to prove God's power, if you remember, Elijah declared there would be no rain in the region until he gave the word that rain could come again. And sure enough, as we read last week, uh, the ground dried up, the skies stayed clear, no rain came to Israel. But the problem is when rain doesn't come, uh, grass doesn't grow, right? Neither does fruit. Neither does any other kind of food. And so God told Elijah to proclaim a drought, and Elijah did, and the rain stopped. But now there's a famine, and the people are hungry, and Elijah himself isn't immune. His, his tummy's rumbling too. And that's where our story begins today. It's when God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath. Um, and so if you haven't already, would you join me? We're in 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 8. It's on page 299 of our community Bibles. And the text starts by saying this. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, and it said, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. And behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And we're going to stop here because this command from God, it's got a couple of surprises built into it. First, God instructs Elijah to head to Zarephath. Now, here's the deal. Zarephath, it's located in Sidon, and Sidon is Jezebel's hometown. Do you remember Jezebel, Ahab's wife? She introduced Ahab to these Canaanite gods. She helped move him over to the camp to be part of a Baal-worshipping cult. Zarephath, it's where Jezebel grew up. It's where Baal is worshipped. It's a, it's a town in a region that's hostile to Israel and hostile to Israel's God. And God tells Elijah to go there. And not only does God tell Elijah to go to a place where Baal is worshipped, but God also tells Elijah that when he gets there, he'll find a widow. And this widow, God says, will provide Elijah with food. 
Now, I think it's certain that God's initial instruction to go to Zarephath, I think that would have been very surprising to Elijah. Lord, why would I go to kind of enemy territory? This is Jezebel's hometown. But this added direction to seek help from a widow, I think this would have seemed just outrageous. Because in this time, mature men didn't interact with widows to whom they weren't related, and especially not a widow from a foreign land or a foreign tribe. There would be shame associated with such an act. I mean, indeed, throughout history, it's always been hard for humans to cross boundaries of race or economics or class or gender. It's never something that happens by accident or without intentionality. But in Elijah's day, much like ours, cultural codes dictate who you can associate with and who you can't, uh, whom you're allowed to hang out with and whom you're supposed to avoid. And so Elijah, I think when he heard this command from the Lord, he certainly would have had something within him say, hey, hey, this poor widow... This economically disadvantaged woman without a husband in a foreign land, that's not someone I'm supposed to approach. That's not someone I'm supposed to speak to. It's certainly not someone I'm supposed to ask for help. Are you serious, Lord? I mean, imagine how you would feel if you were Elijah and had grown up with these laws and customs. Don't you think you'd feel maybe a little uncomfortable? Perhaps maybe your ego or pride would be a bit wounded. I'm sure Elijah felt some hesitation when God gave him this command, but our text said that he obeyed the word of the Lord. So read with me in verse 10, it says, so he, Elijah, he rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, hey, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, I, I do love this interaction. Elijah approaches the gate of Zarephath. He encounters a widow gathering sticks, and he asks her for a drink in the middle of a drought. He's like, hey, I know there's not a whole lot of water around, but could you go find me some and like bring me a glass? And then as she's walking away to go get the water, he has the nerve to say, and hey, while you're at it, can you bring me a little food as well? I mean, you've had this kind of experience, haven't you? Uh, Maybe that friend or that family member who's always like, hey, while you're up in the kitchen, could you just bring me a piece of that cake or that bag of chips? Could you grab it? And then I see some finger pointing right now. And then as it's happening, right, you're like, all right, I'll get this. But you're thinking all kinds of stuff you shouldn't be thinking. I mean, this is, this is frustrating, isn't it? So Elijah, he, he asks for water, and then he asks for bread. And this widow, I feel like she's kind of had enough. And her response, it's so feisty to me. It's almost as if she's saying, hey, pal, I can tell that you're from Israel. And that God in Israel, as surely as he lives, right, in verse 12, that God in Israel, he stopped the rain. So, I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but there's not much water and there's even less bread. I, I've barely got enough supplies in my pantry for one last load. In fact, right now, I'm gathering sticks to bake a fire to cook up this little flour that I have for one final meal before we starve to death, right? I mean, she's got a little feistiness left and it's demonstrated in her response, which I absolutely love, but, but she also seems to have no hope. Because her husband has died and she doesn't have much prosperity left, it seems. And now the rain has dried up and it looks like things are never going to get any better. And you can, can you imagine how this widow must have felt? Widows didn't have a lot of protection in this period of history. And now this, this stranger has come 
and the pantry's empty, and he has the audacity to ask her for health. I'm sure that there's a little bit of stunned disbelief that a man would say this to her, and also I feel a little like hopeless resignation as well. I can't believe that he would ask for this, but hey, I, I might as well share what I have left because we're going to run out anyway. I'm doomed. This isn't going anywhere good. You know, I might as well do one last good deed before my son and I die. So a real uplifting story so far. <laughs> but notice what Elijah says next. He says, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. So that is, yeah, go get me some water. Go get the fire started. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Elijah, this man she has just met, promises a widow that she's going to have enough food to survive if she'll just do what he says, if she'll follow the instructions of him and his God. He says, I know it seems bleak. I know you feel like the end is near. I know it feels like there's no coming back from this one, but trust me, God says you will have enough. God says you will have all that you need. And what's remarkable is that she listens. I mean, verse 15 says, she went and did as Elijah said. I mean, think about that for a second. This poor, hopeless widow hears the word of the Lord through Elijah. She hears a word of direction from God. She hears a promise that there will be provision from the Lord, and she obeys. I mean, something deep within her responds and says, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to give this a shot. And whether her obedience is motivated by sincere belief that God would come through or whether it's kind of just, you know, exasperation, desperation, hey, might as well give it one last gamble. Uh, the point remains, she said yes to God and to God's prophet. She showed a kind of obedience that even God's own people weren't demonstrating at that time. And her obedience is rewarded. I mean, the text says the jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Elijah was close to starving and this widow was close to giving up when God intervened. And he showed up big time. He provided for people in desperate circumstances and he did it using a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, ordinary cooking supplies. God took and did something extraordinary with them. He made it last and last and last and last. He proved his power and care for Elijah and the widow by providing for their physical needs. He showed up and showed off and saved the day. And friends, I wish that our story for this morning ended there. Really, I wish we could spend just the next few moments together uh, celebrating and smiling and rejoicing. But sadly, this isn't the final word of the story. I mean, just like so often happens in our lives, happy endings only last a little while. Uh, things do get worse. If we go on a little bit, it says, after this, after this miraculous provision, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. This widow's son, he, he died. After all that, after all the waiting, all the scraping and saving and rationing of supplies, after these hopeless days and nights, and even after the miraculous intervention of a foreign god extend, extended their supplies, he died. He died, and his mom is heartbroken. Her son, 
her treasure, her, her great love, he's dead. And so she looks at Elijah in her grief and she says, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. I mean, she's frustrated and confused. And just, just days before she had experienced what she was sure was God's remarkable provision on her behalf. I'm sure she felt like God had taken notice of her and cared for her, but now she isn't so sure, and she starts to wonder if maybe she's to blame. She wonders if maybe this is all some cruel joke, if Elijah's presence isn't actually God's way of getting her hopes up before he just chops her right back down. She's wondering if this is some elaborate plan from God created to punish her, maybe to let her have it for some past mistakes or some past failings. And so she brings this raw question to Elijah, what have I done? And why has this happened? And notice Elijah's response. I mean, at first, he doesn't say a word. And I think, church, this is because he doesn't know what to say. I think Elijah's confused and heartbroken as well because he knows his God to be a good God, a God who cares for the widow and orphan, a God who notices the forgotten and overlooked. This is how Elijah's God has been described by all the Old Testament writers before him. It's written into the Old Testament law that he was there proclaiming again. This is a God who cares for widows and orphans. And so notice what Elijah does. He cries out to God in prayer too, saying, Oh Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? I mean, Elijah brings an honest question to God. Elijah asks why. And friends, I think this is important for us to pause and recognize. Because so often we're afraid to bring God questions. We might be comfortable bringing God praise as we sing on Sundays. We might feel normal bringing God a prayer before we eat something, maybe with family or friends. But we're less comfortable bringing God questions about our lives. Maybe we think he's uninterested or, or offended or even would be disappointed with those questions. But notice here that God's own prophet, the person that God selected to confront the evil King Ahab, even here, he's astounded by what's happened. And in that moment, he doesn't try to explain things to the widow and he doesn't try to theologically rationalize what's happened and kind of do all these mental gymnastics in his own mind, but instead he approaches God with an honest question. We're free to do the same. And then Elijah, he stretches himself over the dead boy and he cries out to God in a simple prayer, O Lord my God, let this child's life come to him again. Let this child's life come to him again. And then miraculously, the text says, the boy started breathing again and his chest started moving up and down again and his life returned. And this child, in a single word, was was resurrected. And his resurrection church marks the beginning of a resurrection legacy that characterizes the Christian faith. Indeed, our faith is one centered on resurrection. We believe that God makes dead things live again. We believe that hopeless things can be made new again. We believe that lifeless things can be given a second life. This reality of resurrection, it runs right through the center of Christian convictions. I mean, simply put, Christians are those who believe in resurrection. 
Christians believe in a, a particular resurrection that happened 2,000 years ago after God himself became flesh and dwelt among us and died on our behalf, a resurrection that occurred after God himself died so that we might be redeemed from sin and have new life with him. We believe in that resurrection, and we also believe in many resurrections that have taken place since, like personal resurrections, many resurrections, where those who were living a way of life that was bringing nothing but destruction and despair were encountered with the story of Jesus and, and were made alive in Christ. We believe that those who are spiritually dead have been made spiritually alive in Christ. We believe that transformation is available to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. Christians are those who believe in resurrection. This is why the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. At the center of our faith, Paul says, is a belief that what has been dead can be made alive. And here in 1 Kings 17, with the resurrection of this child, we witness the first resurrection recorded in Scripture. We watch as God reveals a bit more of who he is by raising a boy that had died to life. And I think this is where this morning's story has something to say to us today. I think this is what God wants to remind you and remind me of this morning and this week as we continue to encounter stories of others that have elements where there's deep despair and then our own stories that are tinged and colored by hopelessness and helplessness. Because let's be clear, in this room, there are those who have lost loved ones, uh, who are battling sickness, who have, who have faced rejection from a dear friend or experienced betrayal at work. In this room are people who might be doing okay in some areas, but are really feeling hopeless or hurt or heartbroken in other areas of life. And this morning, I believe the Holy Spirit, through God's word, wants to remind you wherever you find yourself that God brings new life that God brings new life, that only God has the power to turn utter hopelessness into something beautiful and alive. That's the main message this story hopes to articulate. I mean, of course, there are other takeaways. This story shows us that God crosses geographic, ethnic, and socioeconomic boundaries, right, just as Elijah traveled to Sidon. That's, that's worth remembering. And it also shows us that God can use the weak and poor and underprivileged to, to minister to those who have more. I mean, that's another valuable lesson. This story shows us that God listens to our honest questions and doesn't run away when we articulate our pain and hurt. The story teaches us all that, but this story, above all else, teaches us that God brings new life, that God brings new life. And I'd like to suggest that our story implies that God most desires to meet us in those parts of our lives that feel dead and hopeless. He desires to meet us in those hurting and desperate places so that we might be encouraged in our faith in him. And why do I say this? It's, it's because of what I see in the widow's response to all that's occurred. Look with me, if you will, at verses 23 and 24. The text says, and Elijah said, see, your son lives. And what an announcement. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know that your message is clear. Now I know that I can trust it. That's a powerful statement. In fact, in the original language, this now, it's stressed. It's indicating, it's, it's as if the author wants us to know that, hey, all the stuff with the cake and the flour and the wheat, I mean, that was really cool, but it's here when God intervened in a desperate circumstance. I mean, that's what makes all the difference. 
yeah, God showed up in the pantry and that was very impressive. But now after deep heartbreak, now I know that who God says he is and what God cares about, now I know that this is true. That's what makes all the difference. This resurrection is what convinces the widow of the truth of God's message. And friends, I'd like to suggest in a similar way this morning that God wants to affirm your trust in his faithful presence and in his immeasurable love by meeting you in those areas of life that feel the most hopeless, by meeting you in those circumstances that seem the most desperate. Because I think often we assume that God wants us, wants to meet us in those areas of life that we've tidied up a bit, those areas of life that we feel like we've got under control. We think that God wants to meet us in those moments and in those places where we've got stuff more or less put together. But this story proves otherwise. In the story of Elijah and the widow and her son, we see that God rocks right into the midst of heartache and reveals his love and power there. We see a God who brings resurrection, new life to those places that seem dead and ruined, who loves to redeem and restore things that seem irreparable and loves to do it because it proves his love to those who are hurting. Now, I imagine some of you are thinking, but Tyler, I mean, so, so what does this mean for me? And how exactly might this look in my life? Because I can totally relate to the widow in feeling desperate. I know what it's like to feel like things are not going to get any better. I know what it's like to have my hearts broken and my hopes dashed, but I haven't experienced any kind of miraculous response yet. I mean, no prophet has showed up to my door and asked me for something to eat. There's no dramatic prayer that's made things better for me in an instant. And I want to say those questions and frustration, I mean, that's where I'd like to spend our final few moments together. Because first, I want to affirm that you're questions or maybe frustrations or just doubts about this passage, I want to affirm that those are valid. The fact, could God, how could God, I mean, how could this happen? We do live in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be, that's been deeply and profoundly impacted by sin. I mean, life in this world, it is tragic, and those who follow God are not supposed to deny this reality or to pretend things aren't the way that they are. Indeed, the whole kind of center section of this book, the guts of the Bible, if you will, it is all lament and poetry designed to articulate the brokenness of the world that we live, the sad realities of life on planet Earth. This is a tension, this fact that there is a good God, but the world's not as it should be. This is a tension that our faith addresses. And in fact, it's the very tension that Jesus stepped into when he came to Earth. I mean, Jesus knew pain, and he knew heartbreak. The one who crossed the boundaries of heaven to give sight to the blind and heal the sick, he was also himself despised and ridiculed and mocked and beaten. In one sense, he was so, so good, right? In the ways that we hear our God was so, so good. In another sense, treated so, so poorly. He was nailed to a cross. He stretched out his body for all humanity. He cried out in agony on the cross because he knew that from time to time, you and I might need to cry out. And he experienced the tragedies of sin and death because he knew that from time to time, you and I would experience it too. I think this is why the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knew the heartbreak that life in this world that's upside down, that's not as it's supposed to be. He knew what that can bring. But this same Jesus who died in pain, just as we feel pain, is also no longer dead. I mean, he is 
alive. And now we, along with the widow, have the opportunity to meet the living Jesus in those areas of our life that seem most desperate. And like the widow too, we have the chance to say, hey, now I know. Now I know as we experience the comfort of our friends and family, as we are in moments of quiet reflection and prayer where Jesus whispers his word of peace, as we experience Jesus in the comfort that our church offers, and in moments of just silent prayer with tears, as, as, as all that happens, we can more confidently say, hey, now I know that Jesus is who he says he is. Now I know that in the same way he said that he would rise and then did, now I know that in the, he said he's going to come back and make things new, and I trust that he will. And the losses and the heartbreak that we're experiencing now, they're all preparing us for that day. They're getting us ready for the day when we will see Jesus face to face, where he will wipe every tear from our eyes and bring a whole new way of life in a new heaven on a renewed earth. And what a day that will be, church. But what do we do in the meantime? I think first we need to remember that Jesus knows our pain and that the Bible never invites us to dismiss pain or dismiss suffering, but instead looks right at it boldly and honestly. That's, that's the heritage of our faith. And we also need to embrace the fact that our difficulties are not wasted, that they are in fact opportunities for us to get to know God in deeper and more meaningful ways. The Christian philosopher Nicholas Wolterstorff writes about the shaping force that tragic circumstances can have in our, on our lives uh, in his book, Lament for a Son, which was written after he lost his own son in a tragic accident. And he writes, if someone asks, who are you? Tell me about yourself. I say not immediately, but shortly, I am one who lost a son. That loss determines my identity, not all of my identity, but much of it. It belongs within my story. And the rest of his book is a testament to the real hurt and the real growth and the very real shaping power that tragic circumstances can have on human life. And similarly, church, as I read and reflected on this passage this week, I couldn't help but imagine that for the rest of her life, the widow introduced her unnamed son as, hey, this is my son who was dead and now lives that tragic circumstance and the way that God intervened in it became a defining moment in her identity as one who came to know the living God of Israel. The most difficult moments in our life, they shape us, and often they leave us with a deeper ability to name and notice and experience the beauty of our world and the beauty of God. I think this is why scholar and storyteller Brene Brown says, when you ask people about love, they tell you about heartbreak. When you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you about their most excruciating experiences of being excluded. And friends, as someone who spends my days speaking with others about faith, I'd like to add that when you ask people about faith, they will tell you about tragedy. Because those with the deepest, most abiding faith have many times found God in the midst of devastating circumstances. So this morning, as we remember this story of the widow, may we remember that we don't need to hide our pain or frustration, but rather we can bear it honestly before God. And may we remember that God is a God who crosses boundaries, be they geographic or ethnic or socioeconomic, to pursue those he loves. May we remember that God longs to be with us in those areas of life that are most difficult and painful, and he wants to be with us there so that we might experience him in our desperation 
and come to know him in deeper and truer ways. May we remember this morning that resurrection isn't just a fancy word, it's a reality central to our faith that's brought about by the God who gives life. I think that's what this ancient story means to us today. So would you join me in prayer? Oh Lord, I, uh, and I know in small ways just the weight of...